Welcome to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. She's a Canada Research Chair in Global Health Equity and Social Justice with Marginalized Populations and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Factor in Wintosh Faculty of Social Work. Every week, the show features amazing speakers from around the world talking about stigma from research, lived experiences, and activism perspectives. Why should we care about stigma? What can we do about it? Thank you for tuning in. Let's start the show. Today, I am so excited to announce our fantastic guest, Dr. Ramona Alagia. She is a professor at the Faculty of Social Work at University of Toronto. She is an expert in trauma and resilience with a particular focus on gender-based violence. She has a couple of really exciting projects going on right now. One is looking at the impact of the Me Too movement on sexual violence disclosure in Canada. Another one is looking at providing gender-based violence prevention with grades seven and eight students. I know she spends a lot of time in Scotland as well uh, as working across Canada. And we are so lucky to have you here today, Ramona. Thank you so much for coming on. Well, I'm just so happy to to be here and to be doing this with you, Carmen. It's been a a long time coming, but uh, I'm really excited. It's going to be so fun. So I want you to tell the listeners, if I'm in an elevator with you, and we're going up a few flights or floors. I always mix that up. What would you say if I ask you, so what kind of research do you do, Ramona? That's a great question. I'm hoping I can answer it in four floors. Um, we can keep going up higher. It could be a sky Okay, rise. okay. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe not 50 floors. but So in a very general sense, you could call the research I'm doing focused on gender-based violence across the life course. And there's so many, unfortunately, different sexual violence happening over the life course, starting with child sexual abuse. We're all seeing it more and more in the dating violence. And of course, that involves sexual violence with high school kids, peer-on-peer violence. And then, of course, into post-secondary campus sexual violence. And then, of course, um, sexual assault and workplace. So like, there's so much, unfortunately, across the life course. But I tend to focus on disclosure and Mm -hmm. why people tell and report or why they don't, because still the vast majority of survivors do not disclose or report their um, uh, sexual violence, the violations that they've gone through. So, So starting from the very broad and coming down to more narrow, I would say I look at what holds people back from from disclosing. And we know that without disclosure and without uh, telling people and getting appropriate responses, they're not going to get the service or the support or the help that they need to get over this kind of trauma, which not for everybody it's a trauma, but for many people it does become a trauma, especially if it's unrecognized and untreated. Mm. That's why I was so excited to have you as a guest today because one of the main ways that stigma operates, and we're going to get into this in the podcast today, 
is through disclosure. So stigma is a big reason why people don't disclose many things, whether it's sexual assault or health issue, sexual gender minority identities is stigma stops you from disclosing. So I think we're going to learn so much from you today on that. Thank you so much. So I'm going to show up to your beautiful house with a time machine. And I'm going to say, Ramona, take me back to the time when you thought, oh, this is a really big issue, disclosure around sexual violence. I want to spend my life on this topic. So where would you take me in this time machine where you made that decision or where you were influenced to focus on this topic? Because not everybody focuses on this topic. It's a very, I'm imagining, and we'll talk more about it, but I'm imagining it's a very painful thing to talk about all the time and to study. So where would we go in the time machine? Oh, I I remember clearly, I would uh, say the early 1990s, so we're going back a ways. And what happened for me was at that time, I was working in children's mental health, a large residential treatment center. As a social worker? As a social worker. And in residential treatment, you have a lot of um, children and youth are there after many different interventions by the time they end up in a group home or a locked unit or something like that. And uh, so, you know, pretty serious stuff going on. And at that time, we got a report from the ministry saying that probably about 90% of kids and youth in treatment across Ontario had some sort of sexual abuse history. Wow. Wow. Yes, huge. But the thing that was probably the most disconcerting was that we weren't getting at that. So, so anyway, the ministry comes out with this report, and often what happens after these reports come out is that uh, trainings are offered. So I started getting trained up in child sexual abuse, identifying it, theories behind it, providing service and getting trained. And I ended up doing a group counseling with adolescent girls who had been sexually abused. But I think the most fascinating and scary thing for me was that as we were getting this report, as we were doing the training, and at that point I was supervising group homes and departments and, and so forth, I'm going, we're, we're treating these kids for personality disorders, for anxiety, depression, attention deficit disorders, conduct disorders, the gamut. But I'm going, I don't really recall that we've got anything, our treatment plans around dealing with treating sexual trauma. (laughs) So this is how I think I also ended up (laughs) in my pathway because I had an MSW at the time and then I decided to go and do my PhD. But I did a file review at the agency, which was like hundreds and hundreds of files. And I thought, could we be one of those agencies that has this 90% rate and we're not identifying it? And sure enough, at least 90% of our children and youth in residence had some sort of sexual abuse history that got either obscured or not substantiated or forgotten about or, and I found that shocking, shocking that we were treating these kids for the effects of mm. sexual abuse, thinking this was the, their, their, their mental health issues were the primary issue. Mm. But in fact, their mental health issues were a secondary issue as a result of untreated sexual trauma. Wow. So that started getting me really interested in the whole area. And then Again, I went to the literature because by then I'd become 
sort of a, a director over a, a clinical manager. And I thought, well, we got to figure out how we're going to do, you know, how we're going to assess and treat. And there was very little in the literature at that time. So that then led me to say, well, I got to do something about this. I might as well just you know, leave and go and do my PhD. Mm. <laughs> and then I ended up making that my program of research. So disclosure of sexual abuse was a big one. But since then, I've expanded it as well to disclosure of all sorts of um, uh, violence, uh, intimate partner violence, mm-hmm. child sexual abuse, sexual assault. So it just kind of spread naturally. Yeah. So that's been my life's work. And so I just sort of, it's under the umbrella of gender-based violence that I do do my work. And there's a lot of it to be done. It's funny you mentioned about that painful part of working and you know, hearing all these stories and narratives of sexual trauma, I actually find it very uh, hopeful. I know Mm. people find that a little bit weird, but I guess that's also helped me to also extend my program research into resilience Mm -hmm. because, and many, and and I've seen clients before, and I still do today to a, a certain degree, but also my participants in my studies have always said how much they appreciate when people don't see them as hopeless, mm. that don't see them as causing somebody like me to feel pain because ah. they need to tell their story, right? So it's just totally flipped for me in terms of sorry, the, the hope and everything. But I got to tell you, Carmen, when I was doing my BSW way back when. Your Bachelor of Social Work for yes. the listeners who are not Bachelor so sure. And MSW work. is Master of Social Master's Work. Master's of Social Work. <laughs> when I was doing my Bachelor of Social Work and we were doing our placements, which we had to do where, you know, you, you went into the field and, and, and got your training. I remember very clearly putting on those forms, I will work with anybody anywhere except for people who've been sexually abused. Isn't that interesting? Wow. Oh, yeah. I was totally full circle. Like, you spent full the circle last, moment. I don't know. Full circle moment. was the 90s, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Yeah, but my BS, my bachelor's <laughs> social work was a little bit before that. <laughs> Just a little bit. Um, that is so, I, I think that is so important. And I really appreciate that first you ended up studying something that I, you didn't even want to work with and you ended up, you know, in your bachelor's and then, but you ended up studying something and, and doing all this work coming out of your experiences as a social worker, seeing that there are these gaps. It's amazing. And I, I want to talk to you a little bit about, as I, as I said, this disclosure a lot of times is overlooked in stigma research or is just looked at. So people don't look at how the the larger context and social norms in the world influences people's process of deciding to disclose something, anything, you know, from a sexual violence to sexual orientation because of the stigma that they're worried about experiencing. And from... I never really thought about it with, cause it's not really my area, your area around child sexual abuse, but I imagine that it, it matters. And so for somebody who's going to ask you, there's all these things we could be focusing on, like preventing sexual abuse, treating people, you know, all these other things. What's the big deal about stigma around people disclosing? Uh, shouldn't we be focusing on prevention or like this? Why does the stigma, is it really important? Does it really exist if you're going to be disclosing sexual violence or sexual? Yeah, I, I think the dynamics are so complex because I don't know which is like, it's, it's different for everybody, whether it's the chicken or the egg first or whatever. But I've been thinking a lot about this because I think that's actually a trifecta. There's, there's, Stigma, shame, and disclosure. Mm -hmm. And sometimes one of the sort of the pathways, for lack of a better word, for people is that 
actually, they disclose. Mm. They don't think about stigma. They don't think about shame, but their reaction, the reaction to their disclosure evokes all of that because we call it disclosure disaster. They're either responded to by disbelief. Really? That could be Mm. happening to you by this person that we love because often it's somebody that's part of the family or a close family friend or a relative Mm -hmm. to, well, did you do something? Did you bring this on? How come you didn't tell sooner? So it's like blame almost. So that shaming, victim blaming response, then, you know, we hear about these recantations, right? Oh, well, then it couldn't have been true because if they told and then they said, no, 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 it didn't happen. We found through the research and my research that when somebody recants, it's because they've gotten a really bad response that evokes stigma and shame. Yeah. However, there are other situations where you do have people withholding disclosure because they've seen what's happened to other Mm. people who disclose. Mm -hmm. And we just have to look at all these, you know, terrible cases like Gian Gameshi, right? Like those mm. women were, they were put on trial. Yeah. In many ways or, by the media, by the, by the media, by the public, you know, so in so the legal system. something like that and it's happened to you, let's say it's workplace sexual harassment. You're going like, I don't know if I want to do this. I don't know if I want to tell people because what's going to happen, it doesn't look good. Mm-hmm. So then that disclosure is suppressed by the context of what people think is go- going to happen. Or like I said, there's these naive disclosures and then terrible things happen and stigma and shame come into play then. So I think so, it's, a- it's so fascinating. I never, I never thought that there would be these two kind of separate processes, but that are both leading towards stigma or coming from stigma. So if someone decides, I'm going to tell somebody I've been sexually abused and they get such a negative reaction. I like that disclosure disaster terminology for that. And then they start feeling maybe self-stigma as well as stigma from the family members. But then there's a second situation where we have this very stigmatizing society. And when we see what happens when people disclose, we anticipate, so it's like anticipated stigma. Oh, why would I put myself in that position to be basically put on trial by not only, you know, the legal system. Another, and I think it's more than two, but like another reason could be cultural. Mm. So somebody wouldn't disclose because they know in their culture or in their society, they're going to be seen as damaged goods. I just finished a study with the uh, child advocacy agencies in the city and we interviewed teens who said that they would Absolutely not tell anybody because their marriageability okay. would be at risk. So uh, patriarchy uh, rearing its fantastic head yep. everywhere. <laughs> Still, and, you know, and it's not one specific culture. This is what you said. It's where patriarchy is really prevalent, mm-hmm. that a woman's worth mm-hmm. is based on her virginity, her purity, her, you know, marketability. And let's bring in some Marxist theory here too. You yeah, know? I mean, like, I can only think of mo- most places have that um, social norm. Like there's probably very few exceptions where that isn't, isn't the common belief, right? Like probably around the world, almost every oh, country, absolutely. a girl will be worried about being devalued if she experiences sexual violence. Whereas, absolutely. I mean, I'm sure that's also true for boys who experience sexual violence. Yeah. Well, going back to that for a moment, when I was doing the, when I was, you know, running these groups for adolescent girls, and we had, you know, girls from all sorts of walks of life and, you know, cultures and, you know, it didn't matter. They 
often talked about what am I going to do? How am I going to explain to my intimate partner that my first sexual experience was a rape or an assault or a a chronic sexual abuse by a parent? Um, So we would help them to, we took a very narrative kind of, you know, uh, but their basic thing was, I'm damaged goods now. How am I going to explain this to a future partner? What are they going to think? So again, that stigma is operating, right? Mm -hmm. And so we said, you know what, you can just change the narrative. So I want to get to that because I think you're bringing us to the next question, which I think you're going to be able to provide us two angles of, which is really exciting. The next question I had, which you've been talking about, which is what does stigma around sexual abuse disclosure look like? And you gave really good examples from the media portrayal of women who report sexual violence with disbelief or blame for children um, either being disbelieved. But you were just about to say an example of, so say someone's going to tell their intimate partner that they experience sexual abuse. What would uh, stigmatizing example be of their response and then give us an example of what a supportive example might look like so we can tell how am I going to be perpetuating stigma maybe I don't know or versus how can I be supportive so what right yeah maybe get an example yeah so some of the not so helpful responses and probably one that sort of it's not surprisingly would come up in like you know a heterosexist relationships where patriarchy reigns is the partner saying i'm going to kill the fucking guy right oh. or if it was the father let's say yeah i'm going to punch his lights out like that's you know i'm going to do some harm to that person who harmed you oh. it may seem like it's well intended but that is definitely not a good response. That it increases the fear level, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the anxiety. Or often one that comes up a lot is, why didn't you say something sooner? Maybe not to their partner, but why didn't you tell your family sooner? Or why didn't you report to the mm-hmm. police? Or why didn't you tell your family doctor? Or how come you let it go on for so long? Like those so kinds kind of... Kind of like blaming or like... Yes kind of holding yeah. a person responsible or something. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. And that that's another not great response. One might be if there's some sexual issues in mm-hmm. the relationship. Oh, well that explains why you, you know, whatever okay. the, the issue is. Rather, so everything is related to the sexual yes. abuse, even if it's yes. not related to sexual abuse. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Or something that's, you know, positive. It's like, you know, I'm so glad that you told me. Mm-hmm. What would be helpful for you in this moment? Mm -hmm. What can I do? Nothing's changed for me. Mm -hmm. Maybe something's changed for you in telling me, but our relationship is still the same. Or what do I need to do to to respond to you? I think it's just taking an open, curious stance rather than prescribing something or saying you're going to take some action. And that's for like intimate partners or peers. And I have to tell you, I've found some distressing patterns lately in disclosures to peers, and especially in sort of older high school kids and university uh, settings or post-secondary settings, where peers have responded by saying, oh, no, that, that 
that couldn't be right. Or no, that person who may be a very popular person, the you know alleged perpetrator or the perpetrator of the sexual assault is some really you know well-liked person. Again, that kind of, are you sure? No, you know, maybe you drank too much. That's the other thing. You know, how much did you drink? Mm. Are you sure you were clear about saying no? Those are not good responses, but we're seeing more and more of that. And I think there's some good films out right now that get at this issue of, in the States, there's a lot of the football heroes, the sports heroes, that uh, the college stars that are perpetrating sexual assault and then being let off the hook or being questioned, like the survivors being questioned about, well, do you really want to bring this guy down, right? It's also problematic and perpetuating stigma to talk about, well, if you say something, you're going to hurt the person who hurt you. (laughs) So that's just another way of, I think, putting extra responsibility on the person. What about the Me Too movement? I'm so interested in... Oh, yeah, I'm definitely going to talk about that. Yeah, Can I, I want to know. One more? Can I go yes. back one more? Because <laughs> I cut you off because you asked about what, male, you know, what about males. So I've done a lot of work in that area. And male sexual abuse survivors really describe other types of stigma that mm-hmm. have to do with their perceived masculinity, mm. um, their sexual orientation, or, and they're quite aware, I think, you know, there are many more male survivors than we know. I think they're mm. less likely to disclose even more than females, because we're still accepting in our society that females, you know, they're kind of used to being victims. Hmm. And we expect them to be more in victimized positions. But if you're a real man, mm-hmm. in this kind of hyper-masculine society that we have, you're definitely not going to want to admit that you were victimized mm-hmm. sexually. And if homophobia is part of that picture, because... Which it usually is. <laughs> yes, but because perpetrators of sexual abuse of boys are still in the vast majority male. Mm-hmm. So then that whole homophobic issue comes so much to the fore. Like if a boy is sexually abused and let's say he's not gay by a male perpetrator really messes him up and, and, and he knows what society's going to think. And he's, you know, he's so he, 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 but also if somebody's on trajectory of coming out mm-hmm. and then they're sexually abused by a same sex perpetrator, that messes them up too. Mm-hmm. I've read that about women too, that there's high rate of child sexual abuse among lesbian, bisexual and queer women too. And that's complicated because some people are like, well, that's because that's why you're gay or you're yeah, lesbian. Yeah, it's not Is causal. It you're like, we got to get away from those. Yeah, we're not there's looking these, at causal. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, well, I think it's a lot more complicated than that. Yeah, but but yeah, it's that, yeah. I don't know. I think our lack of understanding of sexuality combined with our discomfort with sexuality and sexual violence makes people jump to a lot of conclusions. So for uh, what kind of stigma might a boy or a young man experience if they disclosed that they were a survivor of sexual abuse? So from, you know, the the studies that I've done, the the stigma really revolves around their masculinity. Mm. Like, are you now man enough? Okay. Uh, and especially if you didn't say something, well, okay. maybe I liked it. You, you know, like that yeah. kind of, again, victim blaming. Yeah. And, and then the shame creeps in and the stigma. And then usually there's a real retreat from any further disclosing or reporting. But the interesting thing, Carmen, is that when boys are, you know, 
young men disclose sexual abuse, they're more often believed. Really? Than girls or young women. And you know why? Because why would you want to make up shit like that? Oh, male so there's male like sex. a lack of self-interest. There's the homophobia coming again. <laughs> there's like, a lack know? of perceived self-interest. Yes. Wow. It's sort of like, oh no, nobody would make that up. Oh, that's, I mean, unless it's about a very famous musician, which we won't name. Um, yes. yes. <laughs> um, so has the Me Too movement made things better or worse for stigma and disclosure? So... That's why I'm studying this. <laughs> I'll let you You're know. Like, um, I just got I'll, it. <laughs> I'll come back after no, my but, study and let you know. This is you why come back. I'm studying this. This is why I'm studying this because we are seeing much more reporting, disclosing and reporting, but it's being done on social media, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. So I've been studying and, and, and actually have a, one paper out on... So the um, disclosure on, is being done on social media? Yes. Post Me Too. The Me Too mm-hmm. movement. Hashtag. Yeah. Me yeah. too. So I looked at and, and analyzed uh, a lot of that um, data through social media and, and what people are saying about that. Because you have both uh, male and females disclosing um, through that. And the, actually, the Me Too movement's been around since 2007. Most people don't realize mm-hmm. this, that Tarana Burke yes. started it in Brooklyn. She's a survivor herself a racialized woman who wanted to have a forum, an area for, for people to uh, come together in solidarity and disclosing their, their the sexual violence that they incurred and have a safe place to do it. But it was when the whole Harvey Weinstein um, yes. and then, you know, all the stuff after that, that uh, one of the, the female actors uh, created the hashtag Me Too. So you see a movement that from 2007, 2017, it's galvanizing, it's, it's gaining some traction, but it really takes off in 2017. With social media. Uh, through, because of social media. And because of um, celebrity. And, <laughs> right. and then, but that's an interesting point because I hope it doesn't replicate the kind of, you know, second wave feminist, you know, the, the, the second wave mm. part of the feminist movement. But right now, it's not really as, like, it's not very inclusive. You're, you're seeing definitely more privileged white mm. women coming forward and propelling this movement. There is a feeling, and I've, you know, uh, looked at some of Tarana Burke's um, uh, materials and, you know, and she is certainly feeling like racialized immigrant, women with disabilities, women of different sexual orientations, uh, gender diversity are being still pushed to the margins of this movement. So mm. I, I'm kind of wanting to check that out and see if it's happening in Canada. But when you really look at the faces of the Me Too movement, you're not seeing very much mm-hmm. racial diversity. Yeah, I'm really glad you, you said that. I remember reading something about how when one of the actresses, Lupita, said something about Harvey Weinstein's sexual harassment. She was one of many people and he only explicitly denied hers. And people were saying, wow, there's yeah. there's this still uh, lack of belief or certain people's voices are, are heard and believed mm-hmm. and others are more dis- likely to be yeah. dismissed yeah. or silenced. Yeah. And yeah. that's an interesting also angle of stigma, which is always intersectional when it comes to who's believed because you said well, boys or men are more likely to believe than women. White people are more likely yes. to believe than straight people. Maybe I'm sorry. White people are more likely to believe than um, people yes. of color. 
and straight people are probably more likely to believe than gay people. Yes. I never really thought about the impact of the intersecting forms of stigma on sexual violence disclosure. So I'm really glad that. Well, so that's one of the ones I want, things I want to explore is, you know, how intersectional is the, the Me Too movement, right? Yeah. It, it just seems like that's always the add on. Oh, oh, now we have to address who's left out and they, have been left out in the first place. But yeah, and maybe the, way, the ways that they're addressing it is not the way that it's going to be able to reach everybody. So if Tarana yeah. Burke started something that was really grassroots and really yes. rooted in the experiences of women of color, that whole mechanism might not be just transferred into the celebrity hashtag Me Too movement in the same way. There's, mm-hmm. there's just different mm-hmm. ways of reaching different people who have different lives in, in different contexts. But I do think that social movements, like the women's movement, the various phases of it, and maybe, you know, the Me Too movement is one of those milestones. I think they really do help. Like social movements are for the disenfranchised, the marginalized, the people whose voices are not being heard. And that's hopefully so, what so movement This is do. where I'm going next. So my, my, this is my last question to you. What can we do about it? So tell me, mm-hmm. you think these social movements are part of what we all can do to be part of the solution for reducing the stigma around sexual violence and disclosure. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I think the social movements definitely can help. If we didn't have, have them, we wouldn't have Idle No More. We wouldn't have mm-hmm. Black Lives Matter. Yeah. And in Canada, we really do want to look at how Indigenous women are being yes respond to or left out of this movement as well. And that's part of my um, study is that oh, I've been great. talking to Indigenous leaders about what the impact of this movement is on, think of the missing and murdered Indigenous women and ch- uh, girls yeah. here, really what the hell went on there, that systemic uh, structural violence that occurred. And Will disbelief this by police, like the police yes. not believing Indigenous women when they're reporting sexual violence and the police perpetrating it too. Yes, so. exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so structural. So I do think that social movements are a part of it. So, you know, when you look at structural, systemic issues that are creating, perpetuating stigma around sexual violence, the social movements may be able to address that and hopefully, but it has to be happening at all levels. So the other thing that needs to happen is we need to take a trauma-informed approach. What does that mean? Responding to sexual violence disclosures and reports. So when you mentioned the police, for example, right, they often come in to investigate. If there's a disclosure and then there's a report, because disclosures and reports are different, right? So you disclose to anybody. But it doesn't mean that you're going to report to the police. Yeah. You might have your friends say, you better go report to the police or you should go to the hospital and, you know, get a rape kit done, the whole bit. But, you know, there is a difference. Sometimes people just want to disclose, they get the support they need, but other people also want to report and get justice. Mm-hmm. Right. Or try to uh, get justice. I've seen those, justice. I've seen those diagrams fair. of how many people like report and then how many actually get a, a conviction on the person that they're accusing. Right. It's yeah. like a really tiny number. So the trauma informed perspective would train police to do these investigations differently because they really come from a, you know, they need the evidence, right? And mm-hmm. the evidence also then, because, you know, it doesn't go to court if there's not enough good evidence to, to take it to court. So, but they're asking questions and they're doing the investigation as if, and they don't know what the impact of trauma is on the brain. Mm-hmm. So Carmen, if you and I were 
one day we'll be back in the classroom. Maybe we'll remember we used to do those great classes in the auditorium there. You know, oh yeah, you know, remember those <laughs> I forgot about that. mammoth classes. You know, so that, let's pretend we were back in one of those, right? And you and I are, are doing a co lecture, and suddenly somebody from the back comes in brandishing a gun. Okay, okay. We all have a response to that. We hit the floor, whatever. And then you're asked about that, right? Afterwards for the investigation. Hopefully nobody got hurt. Everything got removed. And, you know, but the investigations are not trauma-informed. They're not thinking about how that moment has affected the brain. So mm-hmm. they're going to ask us questions like, what was the person wearing as mm-hmm. they came in? Uh, if you're a student in the audience, who was sitting beside you and what were they doing? What was Carmen Ramona looking like wearing? What were they speaking about? What happens to the brain, which is a, a, a sort of a primal response, is your field of vision narrows mm. to the threat to decipher how to get away from the threat and everything on the periphery. Wow, I did not know that. Gone. Okay. That's how the brain works. That's how animals work. That's how, you know, they, we, we're still, we will focus on that moment and then but we will be asked questions like, what slide was up on, the, you know, what, and that's gone. Yeah. Your brain has just focused on getting away from the threat, assessing the situation, figuring out what to do. But you're going to be asked about, all, so, so this is what happens with, let's say, rape survivors. And they're asked all these questions. What color was his eyes? What was he wearing? What was happening, uh, you know, out on the street? How far away were you from this or that? What, you know, and then those responses are, I can't remember. I don't know. So their credibility. So So it's like the evidence that the court or the police are looking for fundamentally doesn't exist because the brain is, is changing. It's focused during a threat. It's not laying down. The memory is not laying down the tracks in the way that makes you a credible witness. It's just, it's on survival mode. All that stuff around you is just fluff. There's like a disconnect between what, the court expects in which is police are acting a particular way is because they're trying to generate the evidence that yeah. is required by the court. And that's what they're trained to do. Yeah. There's this disconnect between that and then the actual brain science of fear and trauma. So that's, yes. Yeah. That frozen. Very interesting. There's, there's a lot of freezing that goes on, but let's take, okay. So we can understand the police, you know, they're going to take a while to get trained on this. They should be, but helping professionals are not mm-hmm. always coming from a trauma informed perspective either so they may be responding and i was never trained in that either and and still that's hit or miss whether you're going to be trained in it so when you have a client in front of you and you're asking them some details about their trauma or you know the attack or the ongoing chronic sexual abuse and they're getting these i can't remember i don't know whatever we should expect that that should not lend some doubt to what they're saying and therefore a stigma of they're making this up, they're being histrionic. Oh my God, they're a personality disorder, right? That's often where we, you know. Is that something you can also tell the listeners too? So a way that they can be part of the change and the solution and supporting people is, is to have the understanding that people can be telling the truth and at the same time not remember all these yeah. little details. Or they may not add up, or there might be some contradictions that don't, I, I, you know, so... For taking a trauma-informed stance mm-hmm. would mean that you start from a position of belief. Mm-hmm. I like that. Start from a position of belief. Because you can never be wrong if you start from believing. Mm-hmm. And let's say 
in the, you know, one or 2%, maybe 3% of sort of malicious reports that might occur. You know, you're, you're going to be right 97% of the time if you come from a yeah. position of belief. And then I love start that. to unpack that story with them because they're also feeling... Survivors are feeling that these memories are fragmented. These are also bothering them, that mm-hmm. there's disconnects for them in how they understand because mm-hmm. trauma fragments memory and then the narrative. And we're trying in trauma treatment to, or any kind of a trauma approach to help to develop some cohesiveness, uh, figuring out you know, what, what happens. So starting from a position of belief, which increases trust and safety. Mm-hmm. And reduces feelings of stigma because you're not feeling like you have to defend your memories, which might be complicated because of trauma. Um, it just, and I just think that is a way that we uh, trust people. You know, exactly. let's just start from a, a trusting yeah. perspective that that most people are just trying to do the best that they can. And if yeah. someone's having the courage to come and talk to you about sexual abuse or sexual violence. Yeah. And there's no worse stigma than, but there's many, but you know, one of the really, you know, it's, it's feeling like you are perceived to be a liar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Right. Especially when it's about your, your body as well. About and something your experiences. Like, as, yeah. So your violation. So um, your bodily integrity is like the core of feeling safe, mm-hmm. of, you know, and you're being, you know, so, so, you know, you're starting with that stigma. I, I can, I can see this person's not believing me. So where yeah. do I go from here? And on top of that, by now, maybe there are some mental health issues happening. Depression. Anxiety, in severe cases, some psychosis. Mm-hmm. Then there's another stigma layered upon. Yeah. Oh, geez, how trustworthy is she telling the story? Because she has also mental health issues. Well, <laughs> you know. Totally. So then there's these this double stigma. So all these stigmas, a lot of times, the ways that they keep growing and perpetuating is by devaluing people, devaluing their worth, their credibility their trustworthiness that's you know creating fear and mistrust and so let's not do that when people are trusting us with these important disclosures and also maybe we can start more critically looking at the media and media representations i saw i'm sure you've also listened to or saw monica lewinsky has TED Talk, and I also listened yes. to her on Armchair Experts podcast, which is what inspired me to start a podcast when I started listening to Armchair Expert. And the Monica Lewinsky interview uh, was so powerful because she talked about the long, lifelong impacts of being blamed and shamed and, and mm-hmm. how she has had to work so hard and now... Mm-hmm. That's her life's work is is really supporting people ending bullying, things like that. So thank you. Oh, no, you're absolutely right. I, I remember you told me about the, the uh, Monica Lewinsky TED Talk. So I, I watched it. I haven't I haven't heard the podcast, but it's really great. that's a, a great example of that kind of. Yeah. What does the media generate then? And and, and again, as sexual Violence survivors watch this popular press, media, social media, and see what's happened to people who have come forward. You think two or three times, how safe is this, right? So my point about having a trauma-informed approach is also to then impact 
the social movement stuff too, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's all got to come together and to change public perception yeah. of these issues. And if we're not doing it as a profession or as researchers or as policymakers or as legislatures, mm-hmm. then how is the public ever going to, their attitudes aren't going to change either. Like that, it has to all happen simultaneously from these multi-systemic levels. It's a lot of work. start <laughs> off, and I guess being part of that social change with our relationships with our friends, our families, yes. you know, wherever our workplaces. Yeah. <sighs> so yeah. exactly. thank you so much. I've learned so much from our conversation. So, and I continue to learn from you, Carmen, because until having met you and, and looked at your work and talked with you and spoken with you, for me, it's really heightened even more. I need to be paying attention to stigma. And um, I keep thinking about stigma and, and how much I don't know. For example, I never really, I and mean, we look at stigma, racism, sexism, and HIV stigma, and associations with disclosure of one's HIV status and then how that disclosure Mm -hmm. impacts Mm -hmm. health outcomes. So it impacts Mm -hmm. if you're taking meds, if you go to a doctor, all of these different things. But to think about it, that's also that disclosure piece for folks who've experienced sexual abuse or sexual violence also impacts if they're going to go get health care and mental health care and and get the support that they need. So I'm right on. Can I just say one more thing? One more thing. And then we're going to the wild cards. Okay. Because, you know, I had a a brief (laughs) little moment experience because we all experience stigma, right? At some point or another around some issue or another. And with COVID-19, I, because I'd been in New York and then I had some symptoms and then, you know, I came back and everything I, I had, uh, I got tested and I was negative, but there were times when I told people, oh, I got tested. And just before I would say I was negative, you'd see people recoil. Like, wow. Like yes. Viscerally recoil from yeah. you going like, no, no, I got tested because I was, I was responsible and I'm negative. And, you know, and if I wasn't, I would have been quarantined. But you can just see this range Right. Of, you know, emotions cross their face. <laughs> so, so anyway, it's, COVID-19, it's just, you know, it reminds it's true. you. I've been it's, looking at the stigma around, or at least how we can think about preparing for the stigma with COVID-19, because just what you said is like this disclosure of, oh, I may have been traveling. And of course I was traveling. Do you know how many people <laughs> I was in like Sweden and Denmark and then the UK, like trying to get back right when all of the COVID is really getting yeah. to be this global issue and travel bans were, were happening. And yeah. when I was in Denmark, the border closed and all these people, when I'm like, Oh, I've, you know, I had to come home early. Oh my God, don't leave your house for two weeks. And I, and I was like, yeah. do you not think I know that? Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. I also read the news and I'm a yes. health researcher. <laughs> like, you don't like, what are you going to do? Try to sneak out and you know, put us <laughs> all like, at of risk? Of course I'm quarantining. I'm like, yeah. I study yeah. infectious yeah. diseases. So I think it's this really quick, like this like fear, like as soon as you yeah. disclose something, no. what, you know, whether it's, no. uh, I don't know how that works and we don't have enough time to talk about why are people so afraid of sitting with pain or sitting with something that they want to um, judge or blame or fix this something. But um, yeah, this, this, when you, why would you even disclose a Ramona that you got a a test? If you knew that all these people were not going to be like, what a great responsible thing to do for your own. Yeah. I was shocked. (laughs) (laughs) It's just a small example but you can imagine if you 
experiencing yeah. it constantly on your day-to-day, everyday living, you know. But yeah, I want to hear the wild card question. Oh, my God. Okay. And I was going to say, it's also true for HIV testing. If people disclose that they right. got an HIV test, instead of being celebrated and valued for taking care and agency over your health, people then, well, what did you do that you needed? Yeah. Well, test? you thought you needed So then why mm-hmm. are you going to tell anybody when you're actually doing these health promoting things like getting a COVID test? So every listeners, I hope that you, when you get a COVID test that you are supported and that we can all support one another in mm-hmm. taking whatever measures it is to promote our own health and whether that's reporting sexual violence or sexual abuse. And I'd like um, Ramona you to give me some links to put by this episode for people if they need support or if they want to disclose. Sure. So we'll have that for the yeah. listeners. Okay. So wildcard questions. Okay. I'm going to do three wildcard questions. They're, they're quick. One, if I'm in a karaoke bar with you, what is your go-to song? Oh, geez. <laughs> Whoa. I, I, well, I don't do karaoke, but I'm okay. trying to What do you sing around your house then? Of some, that's a, that's a We could do another one. wild card question if you Yeah, it's, it's a good question because uh, there's so many. But okay, give me the second one. Let's see if the, the first right, one comes right. to me. Okay, so you get to go for dinner anywhere in the world living or dead with at any place and it's there's no COVID restrictions where do you go and who do you take huh well you know I <laughs> love Italy I um so beautiful yeah would just love to be on one of those what do you call them piazzas with having drinks and dinner somebody I've been kind of obsessed with right now and I don't know if this is strange but I just find her to be so interesting is Teresa Tam oh, <laughs> speaking yeah. of COVID I know I, I've met I, her quite a few times oh uh, I don't know I like I, I've tried to you know google her and find out but I just yeah. find when she's she's just such an interesting woman she took a very mm-hmm. like how does she deal with all of this the mm-hmm. responsibility and, and she's so good at even you know saying when she's made a mistake or she's needed to change her mind and why that she doesn't get defensive but she also looks like somebody who might not be that comfortable in the role that she's in as media, like right, that she's had to kind of, she seems like she's, you know, a little bit more shy and introverted. Now she's been cast into this light. And I just loved it when she said, remember, we were like trying to flatten the curve. And she came on with me and she goes, we got a blanket. <laughs> I just thought I'd love to have a t-shirt with her silhouette on there saying, just blanket. <laughs> I was on a plane and she was on the same plane and our seats were right across from each other going to, I think it was Amsterdam last year. Yeah, it was so interesting because she, the reason I know her is she did her state of public health in Canada report last year in 2019 is on stigma. Oh no! I worked with them on the report and it's stigma from a very intersectional perspective. So it's very interesting that she's in charge of this and experiencing herself a lot of racism and stigma. Yes. And you want to have dinner with her and where would you, would you go to like Rome or I've only been to Venice. Um, I love uh, no, actually where I really love it is Umbria, which is sort of the South end of Tuscany. Oh, it's a little I bit more organic there. still. It's not as populated and anywhere you could go, like everywhere you just drop into a restaurant and it's glorious. Like it's, you know, just good cooking. Oh, amazing. Great. You know, they have great <laughs> vistas. It's out looking over those, you know. Aperol spritzes. Yes. Perfect. 
I'm going to have one tonight as a matter oh, of fact. All right. I think <laughs> Thinking I'll about take it a now. selfie and send it to me. Okay. So my next question to you is what are you binging on Netflix? Oh, I just binged. Do, do you want to hear all three? Sure. <laughs> Unorthodox. Oh, I, I, is it good? I wanted to see that. Well, yes. And talk about patriarchy. Okay. And it's like four. So you're not like overwhelmed. It's four series. I think they're going to, four episodes, they're probably going to make it into a longer one, but fascinating the role of women in a very orthodox Jewish culture and the story of one woman's escape. So, you know, I love I was love reading those. the newspaper article about that. Yeah. yeah. What are the other yeah. two? Waco. I never saw that either. Well, you should see it because really it really gives you an idea. I think you'd like it because the way it concludes moves us into a more humane way of responding to these kinds of standoffs where there's, you oh, know, okay. but it is very disturbing. And then Ozark. Oh, I've heard good things. Is Jason Bateman in that? Yes. I, I love like, Jason Bateman. Yeah, I thought he, he's good. I, I actually heard him on uh, a podcast too, and he was really funny and talking about that. So I was like, oh, I need to watch that. Yeah, yeah. Um, Laura Linney and, you know, but it's, it. that's more of a like, fun. Just, yeah, fun. Yeah, you know, with yeah. mindless kind of, but, you know, good plots and good nice. twists and stuff like that. The nice. other two are a bit more documentary. I know. I keep, that's something in my household. I keep wanting to watch documentaries, but my partner does now when I watch the documentaries so we end up watching more fun things like I mentioned we went through all the Fast and Furious 1 to 9 Mission Impossible 1 to 6 and we're starting Raiders of the Lost Ark so um, COVID Um, are you going to continue with Raiders? (laughs) Yes there's just four of them we're like let's start on it okay so my very last question to you what is a piece of advice that has stayed with you throughout your life that you want to share with the listeners? Oh, God, this is a funny one. I don't know if you want to leave it in. But my mother, who who had a sort of a very difficult life, she could have used a trauma-informed approach for, you know, her whole life. But she's also kind of a, a feminist before her time. But she wouldn't have called herself a feminist. I don't know what she would have called herself. But she always said to me, a woman's got to have her own money. <laughs> I just read that on Instagram, like how women need to have in their relationships, their own bank account. Is that what? Yes, which yeah, I've always yeah. done. But it's, it's also good for academia, right? Mm-hmm. That's I like that. Maybe everybody should have their own bank account. And you can also have a shared one, but have your own bank account because it's, you know, you never know when you're going to need it. Well, I think it was her way of trying to figure out equity issues and yeah. equality and all of that. But yeah, so right. it's always stuck with me. Like, a woman's got to have her own money. It's a bit capitalist, but in a capitalist society, that is what gives you some power and empowerment, right? So, yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's funny that you asked me that question. I don't know why it just popped in my mind. <laughs> No, I like that one. That one, And I was just reading it on Instagram. That was great. Thank you so much. I am so excited to be able to share this. And we'll include links to your work and as in places you would recommend if someone is listening and they want to disclose or to share information about where to disclose and get some support in Canada. And if there are international listeners, I'm sure they can send us an email and we can to connect people. So thank you so much. Ramona. Oh, it's been great. It's been uh, a lot of fun too. Thanks, I, see, I promised you it would be fun. You did so. and you delivered. <laughs> and so Thanks. us to be able to talk about a sexual violence disclosure and and make it entertaining and fun. 
is wonderful because I was, as the beginning saying, I was thinking this is a really heavy topic and I'm really grateful that you said, you know what, like there's so much hope and, and we have to approach it from just like, yes. And the resilience. Yes. The hope and the resilience. It's great. Anyway. Thank you. Okay. Thank you you so much. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening to Everybody Hates Me. Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. Join us next week for more inspiring and motivating conversations with stigma leaders from around the world. If you want to listen, whatever I tell you.